Hello and welcome to this episode of the LCN Legal Podcast, bringing you expert views and analysis of the legal aspects of transfer price and compliance. Our focus is always on real-world practical insights that you can apply in your everyday work. In this episode, we talk to LCN Legal's co-founder, Paul Sutton, about the firm's five-step process for creating and implementing intercompany agreements. It's designed to ensure that in a tax audit, the group's ICAs will support its TP position, not undermine it. I started by asking Paul how the process came to be. Paul, welcome. Great to be here again. So you're here to talk about LCN Legal's five-step process for creating and implementing ICAs. And But before we get into the detail, how did this process come about? How did you d- develop it and why? Yeah, good question. I guess what well, first point is certainly we weren't we weren't born with it. Um, when I personally first started getting involved in transfer pricing um, and intercompany agreements, that was in the early two thousands. So that was during my period of working alongside professionals at KPMG, so the TP team there. Um, and I'd have to say it was more of a reactive process for me. In other words, I was acting almost like a scribe. Um, in documenting what I thought were the intentions of the transfer pricing professionals, which was challenging and and interesting and and so on. But actually, a lot has happened over the last 15, 20 years in the world of transfer pricing. And also, um, my awareness, our team's awareness of, of the task at hand has developed a lot. So just from a really high level, perspective in terms of tax and TP. Obviously, the focus is on substance, evidence, documentation, um, and that needs to flow through into the legal agreements and the legal governance. Um, And equally, with the advent of BEPS and the trickle-down of awareness of what it actually means to implement um, BEPS appropriately within groups, it's really emphasized the needs to integrate the legal uh, considerations from the outset rather than just at the end of the process. And I think it's just naturally driven us to become more organized, more systematic. And, and that's really been the genesis for the five-step process. And five steps are scope, review, draft, finalize, and implement. So uh, let's go through each of those in turn. You can briefly tell us a bit more about each one. So uh, let's start with scope. Yes. So so the scoping phase is is really about just getting a handle on what are the key transaction types for the relevant group that are key to the transfer pricing policies. In other words, uh, we're we're identifying things like central support services, R&D services, local marketing support or, or whatever. Um, and alongside that, it's it's identifying, again, from a high-level perspective, what are the legal anchor points? This is something that we've talked out, talked about before. In other words, how does the group interact with the outside world from a legal perspective? And it's really the mixture of those two that's, that enable us to, to scope out from a high-level perspective how many different agreement types do we need to be working on? How many entities are there? And and generally get our hands around the, the project. Fine. And then with that understanding in mind, uh, it's the review stage. What what what, what happens then? So so, so the, the review stage is is about a more detailed review of the background information. So obviously a, a key source of information is is the proposed transfer pricing policies. So whereas at a scoping stage, we're just reviewing them from a very high level perspective in terms of 
identifying the key transaction types. Here, we're actually digging into the detail of those transaction types. For example, um, for appointment of distributors, we're understanding what is the allocation of risk, what is the ownership of the relevant intangible assets in relation to uh, the, the appointment of distributors, um, what's the remuneration policy, and and so on. So it's, it's a detailed review of the TP policies, but also um, a, a review of the group structure. So that means not just the legal entity charts, but also uh, understanding specifically um, what are the key agreements or key transaction types with the outside world. In other words, which entities enter into contracts with third parties and what do those agreements actually look like? And when you talk about transaction types, give us some uh, idea of some of the different types of transaction types that you might commonly or uncommonly uh, find. Yes. So, so um, I guess one example would be contract manufacturing arrangements. So um, let's let's say that the transfer pricing policy is relatively high level. It's it categorizes a, um, particular manufacturers as contract manufacturers. In other words, um, maybe the assumption is that they're carrying out relatively routine functions in terms of manufacturing um, and not generating significant intangibles th themselves. Um, and the TP policy would explain the basis of remuneration of those manufacturers, uh, for example, the cost plus basis. That's that's all fine. Um, and that's that's part of the function of the transfer pricing policies. However, we need to go a step further in terms of granularity from a legal perspective and say, OK, um, if the manufacturers are being, in effect, guaranteed that cost plus return, which is the entity that's, that guarantees it? So which is the principle in that relationship? Um, and what is the contractual flow? So there may be for example, one agreement between the principal or the central entrepreneur on the one hand and the manufacturer on, on the other. So that, that's the kind of overarching appointment of that manufacturer. But the manufacturer may actually be supplying the manufactured goods to other entities within the group. So it's drilling down really very specifically so that we're mapping out the key contractual obligations between the relevant parties to understand how it actually works from a legal mechanical perspective. So at that point, you have a really detailed understanding of um, both the big picture and specifically how everything works from a, from a legal perspective uh, onto stage three, which is draft. Yes. So at, at this stage, again, it's it's going back to the key transaction types. And what we're aiming to do here is, is to create a, a tailored master agreement um, for each of the key transaction types. So as, as mentioned before, this is things like um, appointment of uh, contract manufacturer, appointment of limited risk distributors, central support services, and, and so on. So each of those transaction types, we are uh, creating a draft agreement which aligns with the transfer pricing intentions. In other words, the remuneration, the allocation of risk, the functions, and, and so on. So usually at this stage, or, or in, inevitably at this stage, we're working very closely with the relevant transfer pricing prof professionals. That could be the in-house team of, of the corporate, or it could be the third-party advisors. So it's very much a collaborative process for us of creating initial drafts, sharing them with the, the, the TP professionals, getting their inputs, so, so that the output of this stage of the work is 
draft agreements for each transaction type, which in effect reflects that the, the common view of us and the TP advisors. In other words, both of those two stakeholders are, are happy with the draft at this stage. And I know that quality of drafting is a subject that's, that you're very passionate about. Obviously, any contract needs to be well drafted, but in the specific case of intercompany agreements, which obviously are not like any other external contract, they're a very specific case. In the specific case of uh, uh, ICAs, what does well drafted mean? I mean, what does a, what are the main qualities that a well drafted ICA has? Well, I, I guess the, the the basic threshold, which which you'd like to take for granted, is that the agreements are actually legally binding. Um, sometimes in, in terms of the agreements that we see that we review as part of health check uh, exercises, the agreements actually fail at that that hurdle. So, so that's that's the minimum. Second is is that the agreements need to be clear and unambiguous. That really goes hand in hand with legally binding and and substantive arrangements. In other words, if an agreement is so vague that you can't actually determine what the allocation of risks and rewards is, then arguably it's not an agreement at all. So again, that's that's a fairly low bar you you would think. Next point is is obviously is is the key issue of alignment. So again, uh, this goes back to the detailed review stage and making sure that. Um, we're reverse engineering the the transfer pricing intentions and making sure that they are actually reflected and substantiated in in the agreement. So that's allocation of risks and rewards and and so on. Um, the same applies to the categorization of of the return. For example, if there's a payment being made by one party to to another, there there, there may be different options as to. Is it a fee for services? Is it a royalty for intellectual property rights? Um, is is it uh, fees for, or, or rather, the cost of goods, the price for goods? Um, so, being very clear and specific and intentional ab- about that. Subject to those main considerations, um, one of the key things is that they need to be as brief as possible and written in plain language. One of the reasons for that is that the longer the agreement is, the less likely it's going to be read by the key stakeholders within the group, the more likely it is to be wrong. In other words, not aligned with the actual operational practice of the group. And therefore, it's going to be a liability rather than an asset in TP audits and and, and tax uh, audits. So so those are the key considerations from our perspective. It's very striking there that the points about brevity, clarity, plain language are not aesthetic. They speak very directly to directors' responsibilities, so they are just as much legally important as all the other things that you mentioned. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely, and 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 that fits in with as as you suggest with with the governance point. In other words, if you are asking directors to approve an arrangement, and if you're treating those directors, in other words, at subsidiary level, not as a rubber stamping exercise, but as as genuinely part of the governance, um, it's. Directors need to be able to understand what it is that they're signing. And therefore, we actively don't want legal gobbledygook or something that takes a, a PhD to, to understand. It needs to be immediately apparent what the commercial arrangement is. Yeah. So stage four is finalize. Yeah. So so, so in, in the previous drafting stage, this is mainly a process between us or the, or the relevant lawyers and and the TP professionals to to produce something that reflects a common view, um, but of course intercompany agreements are not just for transfer pricing compliance. 
Um, they also need to meet the needs of various other stakeholders. So that includes things like um, the, the regulatory needs of the group, uh, customs considerations, withholding tax considerations, VAT, um, data protection, and and so on. So as part of the process of finalizing the, the template agreements, we need to work with the client to make sure that those needs are identified, the stakeholders are identified, and appropriate um, input is is obtained. So, so this is a process of wider engagement um, to to finalize the agreements, um, and also as as part of this, it's about localizing the agreements where where needed to reflect the needs of different different countries. And what does that mean in practice? I mean, what is, what are some of the specific examples of things that you would do to to localize agreements? Yes, yeah, so, so I I would say broadly speaking, there are two types of localization. One is um, purely in relation to the financial terms. For example, if you had an R&D service provider in in India uh, providing services to other group entities, um, from an Indian perspective, it may be that the tax authorities would insist on local benchmarking as opposed to regional benchmarking. And it may be that it's a higher markup percentage as a result. So that that's a kind of basic example of, of localization of agreements. And in that particular case, obviously, you're not talking about changes in the substantive drafting. It's really just plugging in a different, different variable. Other types of localization relates to um, regulatory or legal requirements or, or legal blocks. So a, a classic um, recent example of that was was the 3M blocked income case. So, so this, this related to um, an IP license granted by the US entities to operating entities in, in Brazil. Um, in that case, there are actually legal restrictions, not tax restrictions, legal regulatory restrictions on the amount of the royalty that could be paid. Um, and where those restrictions exist, then they need to be taken into account in the form of the agreement. Other examples would be um, groups operating in regulated sectors, such as the financial sector. And that's relevant because where it's a regulated entity that is receiving services, um, that transaction is often regarded as a material outsourcing arrangement from the perspective of the the local regulator. In other words, because that regulated entity relies on those services for its continued existence, for its business continuity, um, the regulator would expect a certain level of protections in those agreements, um, so similar to those which it would expect to receive from third-party outsourced providers. And those requirements need to be reflected in the agreements, even though it is intergroup. So clearly a, a complex but important area. Before we move on, I'll just remind people that if you want to read more of Paul's analysis and insights on the 3M case, you'll find that on LinkedIn and also uh, on our blog, on our website. Uh, so let's move forward to uh, stage five, the final stage, sort of the final stage. We'll come to that and say more about that in a minute. Yes. Yeah, so, so so the implementation stage um, is, is, is all about getting to the end result of signed and, and dated documents, in other words, arranging for the whole portfolio of agreements to be implemented. Um, and what we're talking about here is is, is really am amalgamating three types of information or, or, or data. One source of data is 
is the legal entities. So basically the, the, the names and corporate details of, of the legal entities, but of course also identifying the specific signatories of individual ag agreements. So that's that's the entity data. Second category of information is the transaction data. So that's that's making sure that we've nailed down on an extremely granular basis who is providing what to whom, um, and also the structure and form of the agreement. So is it a series of bilateral agreements, um, or are we able to use multilateral agreements, say maybe with one service provider and multiple service recipients all in the same agreement? So that, that transaction information includes the subject matter of the transaction, um, but also the variables that we touched on earlier, such as cost plus percentages or target margin percentages or, or, or whatever. Um, so, so that's the transaction data. And the third element is obviously the form of, of the agreements um, for which we've created and finalized the templates in, in the previous stage. So that, that's where we create and populate the individual agreements for signature. Um, as part of the process of requesting signature, signatures, it's important to brief directors. So we will prepare um, a form of briefing note, which explains what they're being asked to sign um, and who they should address questions to. So the, the output of this stage is is really, as, as I mentioned, um, signed and dated agreements stored in a central repository so that they are available and audit ready when that audit comes. Speaking to the you know the good governance point that we were touched on earlier, and in terms of the the commercial rationale, obviously there's been a lot of cases recently where that's been an important uh, factor. BlackRock, Sketches, others. How does the way that you um, address the commercial rationale has that changed at all in the last five ten years? Um, so from from our my personal perspective and and from our perspective at LCN, I, th I think it's it's been a massive change. Um, partly, it's it's been just the, the the process of increasing awareness at 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 our end. Partly, it's 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 picking up on obviously that the change, the whole change in in the tax and TP environment, especially over the last five years. So the drive to substance and 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 the requirement for for governance, plus those cases that you you mentioned, and I think. Um, so the question of co commercial rationale actually comes in at two points. One is right at the outset, at the inception of, of the project, um, is making sure that we're clear as as a team, why are we doing this? Why does this make sense? You know, from the high level perspective, do, does it make sense for us to be adopting this kind of structure at all? And, and is this something that we need to uh, test in more detail before we go into the, the detailed review. And and then at this step five stage, the implementation stage, this is really just reconfirming the commercial rationale to the directors um, and making that information as user-friendly as possible to them, so as to reflect their different roles of different entities. In other words, it's interpreting the group-wide commercial rationale and applying that to individual entities so i i think certainly in terms of how we approach that this is this is not to say that it needs to mean voluminous additional documentation but we need to make sure that that we're clearly documenting that so that's the end of the process but it's also not of course because there's also maintenance you know 
same as anything you can't just do it once and forget about it things change in lots of ways and of course you need to maintain your suite of ICAs to make sure that they're still audit ready and, and up to date I think we'll have to cover that in detail in, in a separate episode but for now just give us a sort of quick run through of the sort of key points about um, ICA maintenance ongoing maintenance yeah, so I, I'd, I'd say that the, the, the number one message is for this to be managed centrally by the relevant groups. Um, one of the lessons from COVID was that you can't rely on local or country tax managers to maintain the relevant files because what happens if you can't get access to that specific office or that that individual, um, plus the need for consistency across the whole portfolio of agreements. So I, I would say central management, central control of intercompany agreements alongside other TP information is is just a basic requirement. So um, what that looks like in practice is a central online archive of, of agreements. In in terms of the maintenance, um, yes, it, in, in what this means in practice is the need to create regular review points. So whether it's just annual review points, or maybe it's six monthly for a more active group. So making sure that, that is built into the operational transfer pricing uh, life cycle. Um, and that's, that's something that we at LCN help with by um, reaching out to ICA clients, um, uh, our, our corporate clients on a, an appropriate regular basis to help identify have there been any changes in the group, which mean that the agreements need to be updated. Well, I don't think we've got time to talk about maintenance in uh, much more more detail. We'll have to save that for a future episode. But I think that's hopefully that's given people a good uh, basic uh, outline of um, what's involved and and the benefits and the the importance of um, having a suite of uh, audit ready uh, ICAs. Um, but for now, Paul, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the LCN Legal Podcast. We'd love to hear what you think. You'll find the contact details on our website, lcnlegal.com, and you'll find more information there about the five-step process, the ICA health check, the 3M sketches cases, and much more besides. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe. Go to your podcast provider and search for the LCN Legal Podcast. Thank you, and goodbye. Goodbye.